kind of system do we live in? We live in a capitalist system, but it's a specific form of capitalism. The American system of capitalism. capitalism. People are afraid of losing their status in the society. We were born capitalists. All those dynamics are constantly swirling in the American imagination. This is Dr. Edgar Rivera Colon, and this is Karl Marx Ape My Field Notes. Welcome back, uh, my podcast family. Uh, it's been a while, and many things have changed since I last spoke to you in our uh, eighth episode. Um, right now, uh, we're looking at the COVID-19 pandemic as an existential crisis and a pandemic, of course, that's affecting large sectors of the world. Um, so this is an important um issue to look at. Um, and we're going to be trying to sort it out. We're going to think through this as best we can. And today actually is the first time I've ever recorded, uh, video recorded, I should say, uh, my podcast. And so you can see Karl Marx in the background here, who stole my field notes. And uh, we'll talk today about a bunch of stuff. Uh, but first, uh, let me just uh, say... Um, you know, uh, my condolences to all those who have all those who have lost people uh, in this crisis. Uh, and in one sense, uh, this crisis is apocalyptic. In, in the literal sense of the word, apocalypsis in Greek, which is really almost like the tearing of a veil or the unveiling of something, the clarity that occurs when things are exposed. Um, but it's not apocalyptic in the sense of the end of the world. It's apocalyptic in the sense that it reveals the conditions that have produced this crisis. Now, um, we're going to start off today with uh, a quote. Well, not a quote, but uh, a basic analysis, right? And I would definitely recommend that people look at uh, COVID-19 and the Circus of Capital, which is now at Monthly Review Magazine's website. Um, and it's done by Rob Wallace, an evolutionary yeah, epidemiologist. Um, Alex Liebman, who's a student of human geography at Rutgers. Yay, Rutgers, my alma mater. Uh, Luis Fendan, uh, Fernando Chavez, uh, who's in Costa Rica, who's also a disease ecologist. And, of course, the distinguished Roderick Wallace, Rob's father, who um, is a research scientist in the Division of Epidemiology at New York State Psychiatric Institute of Columbia University and the author of an important book that we uh, should all be looking out uh, for. It's called A Plague on Our House or On Your House, um, but I'll show you that later. Uh, actually, let me just show it to you now uh, to the folks who are going to be looking at this in a video uh, capacity. And what we're seeing here is the book. It's by Verso. It's A Plague on Your Houses, How New York was burned down and national public health crumbled. And this is done by Deborah Wallace, who's an environmental scientist, and Roderick Wallace, who obviously is an epidemiologist. So um, look at that article because it sort of lays out for you um, what's going on. And uh, although this is a natural phenomenon, in quotes, um, what we're really looking at is a connection between nature and humans, and a, if you will, a lack of metabolism, a lack of 
integration in a rational way. And I think we'll, we'll go back to this article in a moment, but I just want to lay out a few ideas. First of all, that what Rob Wallace calls the public health commons has been destroyed over the last 40 years in the United States and the 50 years in the United States. And it's uncanny for me uh, to see how basically austerity, uh, basically what I would call structural adjustment has been inflicted upon the US population and populations all over the world by the people who basically thought through or decided to cheerlead for or developed quote unquote globalization. Globalization is not natural, it's a social phenomenon. And it was done as a way of accumulating capital and extracting even more value from labor all over the world. And it has its effects here in the United States in terms of the basic, the industrialization process we've seen, the increasing what they call precariousness of work, few benefits, uh, no pension, uh, whatever future you have after your work is left to the logic of the market uh, in terms of the stock market investment um, portfolios. So what we're seeing today is the chickens coming home to roost. We're seeing what happens when you close hospitals? What happens when you insist that hospitals have just-in-time production? Just-in-time production is, again, another globalization or neoliberal idea where you just have the supplies you need. You don't have an inventory. You don't have uh, a, a you know, sort of capacity or storage capacity or reserve. This is the logic of capital, right? To be lean and mean, but mostly mean. And so what we're seeing today is the deaths of people. At this point, and I'm recording this uh, interview, not the interview, but this uh, session, this uh, episode on April 13th, uh, 2020, the United States has more than 20,000 people that have died. Incredible. And we see the epicenters of the pandemic in New York City, in Seattle, in Detroit, and other places, but it's going to hit the rural areas where there's even a more uh, mean public health structure, mean hospital structure. Um, so what I think we need to do is, is, is get our thinking caps on, if you will, our critical thinking caps on, and start thinking coldly about this. Start thinking about what is it that happened here? And what happened here was that capital on its existence, you know, insistence on extracting as much value as possible has created the conditions where we can see zoonotic viruses, um, you know, zoonotic viruses or, or germs crossing over to the human. And the reason that's happening is because of deforestation and because of agribusiness. This is the argument that Rob Wallace and his colleagues are making, that in his book, he lays it out perfectly, and it's, a, it's perfectly titled. It's called Big Farms Lead to Big Flu. And, and to be honest with everyone, uh, this is not the last time we're going to do this. This will not be our first rodeo. And next time, it may be even more deadly, if you could imagine that. Um, what we've seen is capital throughout the world, especially in the global south, uh, pushing the environment, uh, creating deforestation, uh, invading habitats of creatures we normally don't sort of connect with. And on the other side, agribusiness creating what I would call, I guess what you could call uh, genetic monocultures or, uh, you know, basically amongst livestock that we eat, chickens, pigs, and so on, and also um, amongst people. 
And what we're, what we're seeing is uh, chicken farms that, you know, are genetic, that chickens are genetically programmed to not have feathers, which is so crazy stuff. This is, this is out of the uh, ninth level of hell if such a thing exists. And what we're seeing now is the results of that. That if you have a genetic monoculture in terms of livestock, in terms of, you know, vegetables and fruits, um, all you need is a good virus to tear right through that, as Robbins Wallace uh, says, um, and you're done. So what we're doing is, inadvertently, uh, we're selecting for the most virulent viruses. And we're also creating conditions at the level of capital. This is investment money. This is Goldman Sachs money. This is Deutsche Bank money funding all this deforestation. So really, we've gotten to the point where capitalism is has always been about killing people. But now we're talking about mass death. Okay, so I'm just going to give you a quote from that article and uh, what Rob Wallace and his friends are saying is that we need to engage in disalienation. Alienation is a basic Marxist concept. The idea that, you know, basically one of the contradictions of capitalism is that the, the most interesting thing we do as human beings is to create, create the means for, of our lives, can be create meaning, symbols, whole cultures, right? Create history. Um, and that um, we're alienated from that. We don't get the rewards from that. So there's a, a bunch of concepts in terms of alienation with Marx that I won't go into now. But his strategy is that if we don't disalienate, if we decide to keep this system to go back, quote unquote, to normal, um, we're in trouble. And I've mentioned this before, that in the, even in the Communist Manifesto, Marx and Engels talk about uh, that capitalism will either lead to a new collective democratic economic system, socialism, communism, whatever you want to call it, uh, radical mutual aid, uh, permanent mutual aid, um, and, or it will lead to the ruin of the contending, contending classes. And Rosa Lutzenberg used to talk about socialism or barbarism. She thought that Eng that Engels, or some uh, that Marx had said it, but apparently I, I don't think it is Marx. But that doesn't matter. The point is this: that you have this decision, you have these crossroads. We must discern collectively where are we going. And this crisis has unveiled the logic of capital, the logic of genocide, the logic of basically colonial settler systems of creating societies that. The United States is a perfect example of. Australia is a perfect example of. Britain is a perfect example of. So this is the quote that I chose uh, from Rob Wallace, uh, Alex Liebman, Luis Fernando Chavez, and Roderick Wallace's uh, piece. But it's a long piece. Read it. Study it. Study it with other people. Quote, uh, and the title is COVID-19 and the Circuits of Capital. Open quote. To avoid the worst outcomes here on out, disalienation offers the next great human transition. Abandoning settler ideologies, reintroducing humanity back into Earth's cycle of regeneration, and rediscovering our sense of individuation in multitudes beyond capital and the state. Social, and just stop here, individuation, social individuation, not radical individualism, which is killing us, as I've said before on this podcast. To continue the quote, however, economism, the belief that all causes are economic alone, 
will not be liberation enough. So we need something else besides the economic analysis. Global capitalism is a many-headed hydra, uh, appropriating, internalizing, and ordering multiple layers of social relation. Capitalism operates across complex and interlinked terrains of race, class, and gender in the course of actualizing regional, regional value regimes place to place. Close quote. So what we see here is this idea of abandoning the ideologies of settlers, um, having social individualism, if you will, or so the social individual. It, and it's not strictly an economic response because capitalism has all these layers of social relation that include race, class, gender, and so on. And that it's it, it's the geography too. It has these uneven regions, and some regions are extracted at a higher level. Their values extracted at higher levels, more exploitative. We can think about the idea of extractive economies. So, what we're seeing today is that um, precisely because of the pressures that people are under to survive, and capital's system of setting up food, mass food, agribusiness, uh, and basically just spoiling the environment, we get, you know, novel viruses, novel germs, novel things that will kill us en masse, that maybe it began in a bat, and now it's in the population. And it's not about these poor folks who are trying to survive. That's not the issue. The issue is that capitalism itself has created those conditions to create wealth. That's the issue. We are dying of the stratagems the tactics of exploitation on a world level that capital has created. Hmm? Go back to old Karl Marx, you know, to figure this one. Of course, we have, you know, uh, here as well in my, in my library, we also have Oscar the Grouch. But we don't have to be grouchy. We need to be active. And we have to figure out what, is, what are our next steps here. And it's difficult to do organizing when we're isolated. What, what a paradox, right? That at this moment, we are isolated in our houses if we have that privilege, right? If we're not frontline workers or we're not people, uh, we're people who can have a salary that will come to us in one way or another. Um, and yet we have to organize at a higher level, right? Some people uh, down south, uh, comrades like Kaliukunu uh, and the people in Cooperate Jackson have been sort of thinking about uh, May 1st as a moment for a general strike. I think we're at the level where we need to do that to protect workers and to change the dynamics in the society. We're in a very uh, difficult time. We're in a time where uh, nobody knows what this outcome is going to be. No one knows. I mean, they could pretend to know, but nobody knows. So as a result, we can think it dialectically. So that means that new forms may emerge, right? Uh, forms that are not monstrous. Forms that um, may create new forms of social relationship, of economics, of cooperation, of mutual aid. Um, so on one level, you know, this is an opportunity to reformat the society from the grassroots. Um, clearly, the technocrats, uh, the people who were supposed to know, 
uh, did not act quickly enough, not in the United States at least. In other places, perhaps they did, Germany being an example. And the reason they did that was because they tested and tested and tested, and they did what needs to be done today here in this country on a mass level. And Rob Wallace and his colleagues have talked about a public health where we need millions of people to do contact tracing in this country. Get the college kids to do it. Get people to do it in a safe way. But we need to do that contact tracing. That contact tracing can be done with a phone, with an iPhone. We need that. We need to restore our public health commons. If we do not, it'll be part of the process that kills us. Yes, isolation. And I'm in self-isolation myself. Not because I'm COVID-19 positive, just because this is what's been recommended. So this is a tricky time for organizing. Not impossible, but tricky. Now, the other thing is, as we look at a place like India or Sub-Saharan Africa, uh, parts of Latin America, what can people do in terms of social distancing if they live in, uh, you know, basically informal housing and what's called shanty towns throughout the world? And they have no running water. So there's a responsibility for us in the global north to start thinking about what's the next step? Well, how do we support? How do we have solidarity? How do we create um, uh, approaches of organizing a politics that will be in solidarity with people in the global south? I, I, what would it mean to ask people to do social distance in a favela in Sao Paulo, Brazil? That doesn't make any sense. So we got to think these things through. People there are thinking it through, and we have to figure out what's going on. So... From a spiritual standpoint or a religious standpoint, the quickening has come. The moment of decision, the moment of kairos, of conversion has come. And uh, we're all responsible now at the level of not only social distancing and, and wearing masks and doing these things and watching out for their vulnerable. It's also a question of what are we going to do in terms of politics? We need a much more radical politics than we've had before. Uh, it literally will save our lives. Or if we don't do that, we'll lose our lives. Okay, so when we think about um, this moment of COVID-19, certainly someone who sort of part of my community activism has been around HIV AIDS amongst communities of color um, since I was, I don't know, my 20s or something. And there's a, a feeling almost as I think about people talking about being positive, uh, people talking, feeling vulnerable, the whole society itself, that finally, in a strange way, we've had the, universal, the universalization, the, the universal enacting of this negative dynamics that we saw in the AIDS crisis, that now everyone's at risk, Any, everyone is vulnerable. It's almost a strange jest of history that, uh, that now people who didn't feel vulnerable are now feeling vulnerable. So the question then becomes, is that the point of solidarity, right? Or is that a point of deeper marginalization? Think about the effects of COVID-19 on the African-American population, on Latinx populations, on immigrant populations, on undocumented populations, 
on the 2 million people incarcerated in the United States, hmm? on the elderly that we generally ignore. Hmm? Uh, so all these people, and what's been revealed is this, this sort of inhuman infrastructure of chronic disease, right? Diabetes, high blood pressure, hmm? uh, kidney failure, all these things that people have, asthma as a result of environmental insults, you know, all these things have been revealed. And part of that is um, a bad food regime, cheap, full of sugar, full of fat, uh, lack of exercise, certainly. Um, but also the other piece is uh, a real lack of care. How, how can any nation successfully combat this kind of virus when we're 12 to 18 months away from a vaccine when we don't have national health care. It's absurd. We don't have national health care. Not everyone is covered. Hmm? Will the vaccine be free? Will there be profiteering on the vaccine? So what we're seeing is almost a, a perverse version of the inequities that we saw in the HIV AIDS crisis. So this is a historical moment. I think Americans, I think September 11th began this process, have lived in, in a bubble of some kind. Many Americans, not all. And they forgot that human beings are creatures of history and therefore vulnerable to the changes of history. To really understand the kind of civilizational impacts of this crisis, we probably have to go to the 1918, 1919, uh, influenza, but we also have to go back to the, the Black Death. I'll talk more about that later, but just remember, this is a turning point. Uh, no one is outside of history. Uh, our populations have to start acting like historical agents because we are historical agents and we have all we need really to change this society. We have us. We have us. So um, what I like to do is end on a some notes, right, to end some, to talk about some hope now. And uh, there's two sources I'm going to use uh, for hope. Uh, one is a writer that I like who's an urbanist, whose, um, his name is uh, uh, Andy Merrifield, or Andrew, yeah, Andy Merrifield. And he has an idea around uh, Marxism uh, that might be important for us. So I'm just going to read a paragraph from an article he wrote called Endgame of Marxism and Urbanism. He's an urbanist. It says, <clears throat> he's talking about the likelihood of things happening. The other likelihood is that truth will get communicated via old means, not new media. Ah, the old answers. It will be shared by word of mouth and on paper, not online. One of the problems with the ubiquity of our current social media is its saturation, that there is too much of it and too much of it peddling lies and fear and loathing, the conspiracy theories right around um, COVID-19's origin, a perfect example of that, to go on. Too much commercial media plays too many channels that offer people too little choice. We are flooded with truths, making it hard to decide which truth is not false. A new underground truth will emerge 
like it once did, from smart people living off very little, living in ruined and cheap neighborhoods, often experimental neighborhoods, communicating via old experimental media. So what he's talking about is going back and reoccupying old ways, mouth to mouth, encounters of different kinds. So we have new tools. This is an example of it, obviously a podcast or me recording the podcast on my iPhone. But we have to think about what are the kind of encounters we need in order to get to a new place. And a lot of this has to be fueled by hope, right? Uh, we just celebrated Passover, some of us. Some of us celebrated Easter. I celebrated certainly Easter. And, and the, the message of Easter, from my take, is that love is stronger than death. That whatever death is, we negotiate it through love. And we can think about this time, how many people have lost relatives, uh, lost loved ones, uh, healthcare workers on the front lines who have given their lives. That's what um, class war is, actually. What we're seeing is a form of class and racialized class war in COVID-19. We can see it, right? Workers on the front lines, the working people, the people with the skills, the people who clean, the people who give people food, people who do all the nurse aid stuff, the people who do the nursing, the PAs, the technicians, the pulmonologists, the respiratory therapists, the physicians, all those folks are workers. They may be highly trained, but they're workers. This is class war. This is another form of class war, if you will, a biopolitical version of it. So we need hope, you know? We need to uh, think about the traditions that have fed us in, in times of crisis. And there's a wonderful uh, quote that I often use, and I noticed that the presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church uh, used it in his uh, Easter sermon yesterday, and I was very happy to hear about it or to watch it. And it's a quote from someone named um, Howard Thurman, and he wrote a book called Jesus and the Disinherited. It's a great book great book for all of you, whether you're a Christian or not. And he's telling a story about his mother's faith. And I think this is a good way to end today, to think about who his mother was, African-American woman, uh, who either was born a slave or whose parents were slaves. And he's relating this story in, the, in this book in a chapter on fear. And fear is really the question that we're dealing with today. Mass fear, right? And we need mass hope, right? So I'm gonna read this quote and then we'll, we'll, we'll end uh, our podcast for the day. It is a longer podcast than usual, but it is a COVID-19 podcast. I'm thinking we're gonna come back to these uh, ideas again and again. And uh, we need to get ready. Share this as widely as you can, as widely as you think fit because we need this message out. Uh, we need to connect, encounter, engage, and basically change this system. Uh, I ask all my Christian socialist friends, all my secular uh, friends, revolutionaries of all kinds, let's get up into the gear. Let's do this because our lives depend on it. So, quote, when I was a very small boy, Haley's Comet visited our solar system. For a long time, I did not see the giant in the sky because I was not permitted to remain up after sundown. My chums had seen it and had told me perfectly amazing things about it, 
also I had the head of what were I heard of what I heard about what had been called comet pills. The theory was that if the pills were taken according to directions, then when the trail of the comet struck the earth, one would not be consumed. One night I was awakened by my mother who told me to dress quickly and come with her out into the backyard to see the comet. I shall never forget it if I live forever. My mother stood with me, her hand resting on my shoulder, while I, in utter speechless awe, beheld the great spectacle with a fan of light spreading across the heavens. The silence was like that of absolute motion. Finally, after what seemed to be an interminable time interval, I found my speech. With bated breath, I said, What will happen to us if that comet falls out of the sky? My mother's silence was so long that I looked from the comet to her face, and there I beheld something in her countenance that I'd seen only once before when I came into her room and found her in prayer. When she spoke, she said, Nothing will happen to us, Howard. God will take care of us. O oh, simple-hearted mother of mine, in one glorious moment, you put your heart on the ultimate affirmation of the human spirit. Many things have I seen that night, since I have seen since that night. Time without number, I have learned that life is hard, as hard as crucible steel. But as the years have unfolded, the majestic power of my mother's glowing words has come back again and again, beating out its rhythmic chant in my own spirit. Here are the faith and the awareness that overcome fear and transform it into the power to strive, to achieve, and not to yield. End quote. Dr. Thurman, Howard Thurman, was a spiritual advisor to uh, Dr. King. Very important spiritual advisor. So I say to you today, my friends, uh, on this ninth episode of Call um, uh, Marks, stole my field notes um, that we're in a period of, of looking for hope, of striving, of not bending, uh, of fighting. Um, I will continue to do these podcasts um, more regularly because the times require it. And as I always say, uh, by thinking hard, by living hard, by loving hard, we're going to change this place. Mm-hmm.